until he set his eyes upon his living God. And then he recognized that he needed to be filled with God so that he did not envy the arrogant or admire the prosperity of the wicked. And that's what we are declaring in this call to worship. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Now let us take our hymns of grace, turning to hymn number nine. For those of you who I'm able to send a message through social media, I sent you this hymn this week, number nine, stand up and bless the Lord. So with that which I sent to you, you were also uh, given something of what this hymn means and, and the author and, and so forth. But uh, it was originally written for children. Uh, but they put it in a hymn book and changed that stanza, all people, it used to say all children of his choice. Now it says all people. So let us do what we're exhorted to do in this hymn. We're standing, and now let us bless the Lord. Rachel, would you play it through once, and then we'll sing it.
Lord, Heavenly Father, how we thank you, Lord, for it is your day, and we have come to worship you. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse our hearts, and make us fit to worship such an awesome king. Father, you are the creator of all the stars, all the moons, and and of everything that is created, you created. And so we stand in awe this morning. We stand here uh, and try to contemplate the truth of your greatness, your majesty. Father, you have, by your mercy and grace, made a way that we can have our sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we thank you, Father, for you loved us while we were yet sinners. We were ugly in our sin, and you did everything that that uh, needed to be done that we might have eternal life. So, Father, we do um, ask that you would fill this place with your spirit this morning and throughout the day. And we ask, Lord, that if there be anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own uh, Savior and Lord, we ask, Lord, that today might be the day of salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now then, take your Trinity hymn books, the Trinity hymn books, and turn to hymn 460, 460, Love Divine, All Love Excelling, number 460 in the Trinity hymn book.
to John chapter 14 as we uh, continue in our uh, walk through the book of John. John chapter 14. Today I'll be reading from the uh, NAS version. Well, here's the scene. In the upper room was Christ and his disciples sharing the Passover meal. Judas has been dismissed, and the world of the disciples was about to be shattered. The disciples would be confused. They'd be full of anxiety, fear, because of the events that would now take place. The hour has come. The eleven would soon be devastated. And Jesus speaks in this chapter to comfort the hearts of his disciples. And also to you and to me. In verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What comforting words. And it's words that we need in today's world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would also you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these will 
he, he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him now or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has kept my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded. Get up. Let us go from here. This morning as we go to prayer once again, we especially want to remember uh, Dave Merrick, who is uh, one of the retired elders from the Grace Emmanuel Reformed Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, and he is a man who reminds us of being fruitful in your old age. He has given himself to the work of the gospel in various ways. His last letter mentioned that he just returned not too long ago from Kenya where he taught, and he is getting ready to go uh, to, I believe it was India, as well as the Middle East here uh, very soon. And so we want to pray for our brother as he labors for the advancement of the gospel in 
places around the world for our God's glory and honor. So let us seek our God together in prayer. Our Father, as we have heard your word read to us this morning, we're just reminded of the many things that we have to be thankful for. We're thankful for the confidence that we have that you have gone and prepared a place for us, that where you are, we may be also. And Father, we pray that each one of us might eagerly await that day when we shall be in the presence of your Son and have a joy that is joy unspeakable and a glory that has never yet been experienced. And therefore, Father, may we be a people who are found faithful, laboring in challenging and difficult days, but knowing there are days to come that are so much better. Father, we're thankful as we're reminded that you did not leave us as orphans, but you've given us a helper. Fall too often, he is a neglected helper. But we pray and realize our need of such a helper. We, we need your spirit to come even this morning and help us to worship you aright. We need the spirit to come and make the Word of God effective in our hearts and lives. We need the Spirit to come to convict us and expose our sin that we might confess and forsake it. We need Your Spirit to come to commend us and help us to persevere and pursue the things of God while we wait the Son's return. And so we're thankful for the Spirit of God. We're thankful for the peace that we can have in the midst of so much chaos, and so much evil, and so much war. We're thankful that we can have a peace within because we know the One who controls all things and does all things well. And so we pray that as we worship you this morning, our, our hearts are filled with gratitude for so many good things that you've given to us. And Father, we pray that you would be with Micah as he opens the word. May you draw near to us, give him clarity, give him help, and do us good as we hear the word of God proclaimed. Father, we would also this morning pray for our brother Dave Merrick and thank you for him and pray that you'll give him the strength that he needs. We pray for his family as they've gone recently through some real difficulties. Pray for his daughter-in-law that she would know of your healing help for her. Watch over her and the little one. But Father, even as Dave leaves with some hesitancy because of what's going on in his family. We pray that you would bless his ministry as he visits family in the Middle East and then as he goes over to India and does some teaching there. May you use him for your glory and honor. Give him all that he needs throughout these travels. 
Thank you for giving us the opportunity to intercede for him even as a church. So, Father, we do commend the rest of this time to you, asking you to help us as your word goes forth. As we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Now before Micah comes to open the word, take again your Trinity hymn books, turning to Fim 599, 599, a hymn that speaks of that resurrection and life eternal that we look forward to. The sands of time are seeking. 599 Trinity hymn books.
Amen. Let's uh, pray together. Would you remain standing while we ask the Lord to bless his word? Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you as helpless, needy, poor beggars. But we come to you because in Christ is the fullness of grace. In Christ is fullness of mercy for poor sinners like us. So we come before you in worship. We come before you ready to hear your word, trusting in Jesus Christ this morning. We know that our worship is only acceptable to you because it's offered through him. So we trust you for your own glorification. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the first epistle of Peter. First Peter chapter 1. And the text this morning is actually going to only be verses 4 and 5, but I'll read verses 3 through 5 so we get a sense of, sense of the whole block of thought here. But as I was... Perhaps you noticed in the, in the last message, there were going to be five uh, foundations of living hope. And as we were coming to the end of it, I looked off the fifth one. And that's, the reason for that is because preaching is sort of a mysterious thing. Sometimes you're, you're going along, and as you're going along, you're seeing things that really, really need to be brought out of the text, and time doesn't permit you to go there. So this morning we're going there and we're going to unfold more clearly what would have been the fifth foundation of living hope. And that's the security of the believer's hope. The security of the believer's inheritance is what is brought out in verses 4 and 5. But before we get any further, let me, uh, let's read 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5 together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in this section of Scripture, I want us to get our minds around the fact that Peter is trying to encourage a suffering church unto perseverance. That's Peter's purpose here. Uh, If you look ahead with me a little bit in verse 7, He says in verse 6 that you've been grieved by various trials, but for the purpose so that the tested genuineness of your faith. That's what this is about. This is about your faith being proven genuine, being proven to be true believers, ones to whom the imperishable inheritance belongs, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result and praise, and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole passage is supposed to be encouraging. It's supposed to be encouraging the kind of faith that endures to the end, all the way until the coming of Jesus Christ. 
That's when your faith will be turned into sight. And only true living faith, faith that can go through the fire and be tested in the fire of the trials of life and of persecution, is the kind of faith that actually receives promised inheritance at the coming of Jesus Christ. So Peter, what Peter is after in this section is he's trying to build their hope born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But he's trying to build their hope for the purpose of their perseverance in the faith, come what may. But here's the question that maybe we should start asking ourselves, because there are all kinds of ways that different New Testament authors try to encourage perseverance in their hearers. So I think it's an interesting question that sort of gets at the heart of what Peter is saying uh, to ask ourselves, why is Peter primarily trying to encourage this perseverance in a positive way? He's trying to encourage their perseverance by promising. He's focusing on the promises of the gospel rather than the threats of unbelief. But we know that both ways of encouraging perseverance are valid. Neither one of these ways of encouraging perseverance is invalid. There are all sorts of warning passages in the New Testament. For instance, Hebrews, most of them, many of them are in the book of Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's warning them from neglecting the salvation offered in Christ. You won't receive the inheritance if you neglect this. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's impossible to restore some who have finally apostatized again to repentance. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 echoes a similar point. If we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but actually you've held up the Son of God to open shame and trampled underfoot the blood of His cross. This is describing final apostasy, and it seems at least that the writer to the Hebrews thinks it's valid to warn, to warn against unbelief, to warn against creeping doubt, because if you abandon the faith, you won't receive the inheritance, but the only thing that you can expect is the fury of a fire that will consume God's adversaries. So both of these ways are valid, but that's not the angle that Peter is coming at this truth from in this passage. Peter doesn't speak like that. Rather, he clothes his exhortation in security language. This is all security language. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, something that God has prepared for you that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept secure in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded for that inheritance by the very power of God that raised both Jesus from the dead and granted you the new birth in Christ. Peter is clothing his exhortation to genuine gospel faith in security language, in language clothed with the promises of God. And I think that it's, it's for this reason. Peter knows that enduring faith 
and true hope flow first from certainty and not from uncertainty. You don't get at true hope from constantly questioning and examining yourself. I know that sounds, that sounds counterintuitive because we are told to examine ourselves, and that's absolutely true, but that's not where your assurance of faith starts. That is something that we have to do. We do have to examine ourselves to see if we're truly in the faith, but that's not where the primary place or the fountain of our assurance. The fountain of our assurance flows from the promises of God. The fountain of our assurance flows from the security of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So all of our assurance and all of our perseverance actually flows from certainty of Jesus Christ, from the certainty of what he's accomplished. And then by faith alone we trust in that. That's that's the beginning point of our assurance. So what Peter is after, a kind of perseverance that flows first and foremost from assurance and confidence, not apprehension and insecurity. First from assurance and confidence in the promises of God and not apprehension and uncertainty. And Peter uses a few different words to describe our living hope that should inspire us with perseverance in flaming assurance. So look at this, this first term. It's, it's pretty obvious. We're just going to walk through these. Verse 4, or verse 3, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you could look at this. You could look at this as Peter looking into the eyes of these believers and responding to what they've lost. Because these are believers who have probably already lost something for the, for the sake of the gospel. Maybe they've lost houses. Maybe they've lost lands. Maybe they've lost family members. Maybe, you know, Jesus said, I came, to, I came not to bring peace on earth, but I came to bring a sword. Coming into Christ always involves a loss of the world uh, which you were crucified to through the death of Christ. So maybe Peter is at least in part responding to what they've given up. You lost everything here, but you have a better inheritance coming. And that's part of the picture. But Peter is not only trying to comfort them with something better in the future than that they've lost in the present. Uh, But the use of this word inheritance actually grounds the comfort he offers in the very promises of God that are repeated throughout history. Peter is grounding the comfort. I know you've lost everything. I know you don't have any inheritance here. You're exiles in the world. And and even more suffering is coming down the pipe. So I know you've lost all of these I know you've lost all of these things and you're sensing that you're an alien in the world. But actually the promised inheritance that you have in Christ not only does it make up for not only does it more than make up for what you've lost in the here and now, but actually through the very use of this word inheritance he is drawing our minds back into the unfolding promises of God throughout history that are recorded from Genesis chapter 1 and onward. 
Think about it. Peter is a Jew. Peter is drawing our minds through the use of this word inheritance back into the Hebrew Scriptures. Peter is part of a people that knows what it is to be promised an inheritance. This is part of the heritage of the Jewish people. What were they promised? They were promised a lot of different things, but one of those was numerous descendants in the land of Canaan, in a land that God would give them. Let's, uh, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12 to explore this a little bit. So I want us to see the Old Testament foundations of these promises and how they're fulfilled in Christ. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12. This is the calling. This is the calling of Abram. And this promise of an, inher- of an inheritance it is, is there from the very beginnings of the Old Covenant. Genesis chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, God is speaking to Abram, who was probably worshiping the sun and the moon in Ur of the Chaldees, and he reveals himself to him and says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. To the land, there's the inheritance, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, another part of the inheritance. And I will bless you and I will make your name great, another part of the inheritance, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, blesses you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was about 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out into the land of Canaan. And they came to the, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he hasn't received the land yet, but this is what God is promising him. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So what do you see? You see people, you see land, you see inheritance, you see even an increase in possessions. You see, all of these things are promised to Abraham through the covenant that God makes with them. And then... Not only that, not only does God say it in Genesis chapter 12, he actually repeats it in Genesis chapter 17. Turn over there with me, just a couple of pages. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 9. Or, excuse me, starting in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between you or between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There's the offspring part of the inheritance. And then I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. So that land that he came to, the land of Canaan, that God hadn't given him yet, he's now re-promising it to him. The land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. So at the heart of this is a relationship between God and his people. But it includes a land. It includes a people for his own possession. 
And then it's repeated, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 28, it's repeated to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these promises are being repeated over and over and over again. The promise of this inheritance. But Genesis chapter 28, Jacob meets, sees God in a dream, the ladder reaching to heaven or the staircase, this sort of temple-like structure where heaven is meeting earth. And, and God says to Jacob, And behold, the Lord stood above it, above the staircase, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and the south, and in you your and in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then it doesn't stop there. Exodus chapter 32, verse 13. I will multiply you and give you this land to inherit. So we see that from the very genesis of the people of Israel, the concept of inheritance is key to the covenant that God makes between him and them. It's absolutely crucial to the biblical storyline that we understand the significance of the concept of the inheritance. But it's not only starting in, verse, uh, in Genesis chapter 12 with Abram. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 26, God makes man in his image. And then look at what is said. Look at at what man is charged to do, being created in the image of God. Then God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So what is promised to Adam even? Even from the beginning of the creation, from the sixth day, an inheritance is promised to Adam. God tells them, uh, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. In other words, God is charging Adam to inherit the earth. That's the task before you. Obey me. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The the tree of life is there to promise you life at the end of your probation. And in the meantime, while you're obeying me, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, inherit all of this as my vice regent, as the image of God reigning over creation. That's the charge to Adam. It's recapitulated and given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob in the form of the Abrahamic covenant which promises them the land of Canaan. So we see this is not just a new covenant. The promise of an inheritance is not just a new covenant promise. It is a crucial part of God's promises ever since the creation of the world. It's what Adam was supposed to obtain but he lost 
It's what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were promised. It's what the children of Moses were supposed to, were, were supposed to obtain, but they kept losing it over and over and over again. Through Peter's very use of the word inheritance, he's drawing our minds to the unfolding promises of God throughout all history. And I think that this should, just as sort of an aside, even this should encourage our our assurance, shouldn't it? Because Peter is showing us that our gospel hope is not an anomaly. This is not something that God has dropped on us out of the blue And it's not something that has happened in a corner. The promises of the gospel aren't hanging in midair with nothing to support them. They have all of God's work in history supporting them and unfolding them until they come to their climactic fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Our faith is a historical faith. Our faith is a faith that is based upon God's self-revelation of himself in history. And the concept of an inheritance, which were promised in 1 Peter chapter 1, is part and parcel of that. What we have in Christ is the climactic fulfillment of the story that God has been telling since he spoke the universe into existence. Peter calling our hope and inheritance assures us of the truth of the gospel and gives us a sense of security knowing that what we have in Christ was always God's plan and we can see it in the scriptures. What is Paul's foundational defense of the gospel to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what does it say? He was, he de- I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with what? In accordance with the scriptures. So Peter, just like Paul and just like other writers of the New Testament, is, keeps drawing our mind back to the promises of God unfolding throughout history that are recorded in scriptural revelation. But here's the problem. Inheritance is a word that is loaded with baggage. Just if, if all Peter did was call what we have an inheritance in Christ, that wouldn't actually assure us of anything on its own. Why is that? Because the entire Old Testament is a story of an inheritance promised and an inheritance lost. What is Adam promised? Adam is promised paradise on earth. The glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And what does he lose? He loses that inheritance. Through what? Through his disobedience. What, is, what are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promised in the land? Well, I'll bless you if you obey me and I'll curse you if you disobey me. Deuteronomy chapter 28 that Pastor Calvin just finished preaching through the book of Deuteronomy. We see how this inheritance is promising blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. He says, if you obey me, I'll I'll bless you when you go out into the field. I'll bless you when you come in. I'll bless you when you rise. I'll bless you when you sleep. I will bless every aspect of your life. I'll give you Rest from all of your enemies. I will conquer your enemies if you obey me. 
My, my, the theophonic presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, will dwell in your midst in the temple if you obey me. All of the nations of the earth will marvel at the glory of Israel if you obey me. This is the promise of their inheritance. And what do they do over and over again? They lose it. They're disinherited from the promises. Through what? Through their disobedience. The same thing that caused Adam to lose his inheritance the same thing that is the same thing that caused the children of Israel to lose their inheritance. So Peter, just using the word inheritance, in and of itself would not assure us of anything. In fact, it would create uncertainty. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. just as we get a taste of how this works. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes. So what is God commanding? He's commanding perfect, perpetual obedience. You shall keep all my statutes and do them. That the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Right there is the threat of disinheritance. If you disobey me, this land is going to vomit you out. And we know that that actually did happen. More than once. The king of, the king of Babylon besieged the land of Judah. And the temple was torn down. And all of the mighty men of Judah were carried off into Babylon to become the possession of another nation. To live in another land where they worshipped the idols that Israel had given themselves to as they were dwelling in the land of their inheritance. So do you see how easily this could have been lost? You see the, the temporality and almost the, the superficiality of this old covenant promise of an inheritance that this is something that I can forfeit by my disobedience. I can forfeit this by breaking the law of God. And all of it, really, all of it has at its heart the fact that the Old Covenant was conditional. It was a conditional covenant. It could only offer an inheritance that was perishable, defilable, and fading because it was conditional upon the obedience of sinful people. Because it was an inferior covenant, it promised an inferior reward or an inferior inheritance, an inheritance that could, be, that could perish, that could be defiled, that could fade away. And like we just saw, this is exactly what happened to both Adam and Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 uh, paints a vivid picture of that, doesn't it? The vineyard that the Lord planted has what? has her walls, her hedge torn down, briars and thorns, which are ultimately symbols of the curse, grow up in her. That's a, that's really a, that's a picture of the Garden of Eden, and it's a picture of the paradise of Eden, the inheritance lost through disobedience. So I've been saying all of this to, sh- to show us that the Old Testament is teeming with warnings about obeying the Lord so as to not lose your inheritance. 
And this is all a part of Peter's consciousness as a Jew. Remember who Peter is. Peter lived uh, a little bit before the coming of Christ, and he was under the occupation of Rome. So he felt this in his own heart and in his own mind. He felt that things in this land are not as they're supposed to be, and it's because of our unfaithfulness. He knows that this inheritance is based. He knows that if this inheritance is based on my obedience, there's no hope that any of us will actually attain it. But, according to Peter, turn with me back to 1 Peter. According to Peter, that is not the kind of inheritance that the new covenant promises. The new covenant contains better promises than the old covenant did. Look at, look at the kind of inheritance that the new covenant promises. The new covenant promises, verse 4, it grants, it grants to us through, it grants us this inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and then to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So everything that the old covenant was not, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ is. And this is the gospel promise that Peter wants us to sink our teeth into you. Peter wants this kind of inheritance to fortify our hope and drive our perseverance in the faith. Like I said at the beginning, Peter's aim here is perseverance. But he doesn't want you to persevere from a sense of uncertainty. He wants you to persevere in total confidence that Jesus Christ has obtained your inheritance for you and that it is unforfeitable if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. He has caused you, God in his mercy has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is the cause of these things in the new covenant. He has joined you to Jesus Christ in his resurrection. He is the one, verse 5 that guards you through faith uh, for the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is an unforfeitable inheritance. This is an inheritance that is so much better than anything the Old Covenant offered. And that is because it is founded on a better covenant. So that brings us to the, to the next point, a better covenant. And this, but this better covenant was even promised in the Old Testament. I know we're going into a lot of Old Testament today, but uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54. I just, I want us to see this morning that the whole Bible is telling this same story, is knit together around the same promises that are yes and amen in Christ. Isaiah 54. This is coming on the heels of the suffering servant prophecy. Uh, in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So there's a resurrection of this servant here. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see his offspring and he'll be satisfied. He will he'll make many to be accounted righteous. God will divide him, what? A portion with the many? He will divide the spoil with the strong? 
So there in Isaiah 53, we see that the servant, the suffering servant, because he poured out his soul unto death and because he was numbered with the transgressors, he himself receives an inheritance. I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. But then Isaiah 54, coming on the heels of the work of the suffering servant, what does it say? All of the covenant-breaking, cursing imagery from the Old Covenant is being reversed in Isaiah chapter 54. Instead of barrenness, instead of a lack of place that's been taken away because of our disobedience, what does he say? He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. This is temple, tabernacle imagery. The picture here is the presence of God overflowing the borders of Israel and encompassing all the earth. That's why he says next, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you'll remember no more. No longer is the people of the Lord a people who has been issued a decree of divorce. They are a people who has been gathered as an irrevocable bride for Yahweh. For your maker is your husband and the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. It's based on the redemptive action of God. The God of the whole earth he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore in the that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. So just as God promised after the flood of Noah that he would no longer cause the waters to go over the earth, so he is promising that his people will never experience his judicial wrath again. Because of what? Verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. In the blood of the suffering servant, in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, is established a covenant of peace between God and his people. So now, no longer is the charge, obey and inherit. The invitation is the suffering servant of the Lord has obeyed. Now trust in him and inherit what he has merited by right. That's the message of the gospel. We own by faith what is Christ's by right. Christ has merited this for us. 
So we don't have to worry about losing our inheritance. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 can, or verse 4 can call this inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading because it's founded on a covenant of peace in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made peace. He's made peace between you and God. Jesus was nailed to a cross bearing the curse of God for your sins. All of your unfaithfulness to God imputed to Him on that cross. And then He rose from the dead for your justification. That's the basis of this new covenant promise. That's the basis of the better hope, the living hope that we have in Jesus. It's no longer something we can forfeit because we didn't earn it. It's not that kind of covenant. It is a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. So the author of the Hebrews exposits the security and the glory of this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. And he actually quotes the Old Testament here. He quotes the promise of the new covenant from Isaiah chapter or from Jeremiah chapter 31. But as it is, starting in verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, so there's weakness in the first covenant, and why is it weak? It's weak because of our sins, because we could never inherit what it, what it holds out, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds faults with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the uh, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. What is that? Continuing in obedience to the Lord. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And in those days, declares the Lord, I will what? I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach each one his neighbor, or they shall not teach each one his neighbor uh, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's so interesting that so many of the different elements in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, are contained right here in this passage that the author to the, to the Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. What does Peter say? Peter says, You have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's spiritual resurrection by being united to the Messiah. What does, Isaiah, or what does Jeremiah 31 say here in Hebrews 8? Uh, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That is spiritual resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by being joined to the Messiah in his death and resurrection, you have gone from somebody who hates God, who hates his law and is totally opposed to him, to somebody who's 
has God's law written on their mind and written on their heart. He is your God and you are his people. But it's, it's not just that. Verse 12, I'll be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven that will never be taken away from us because the promise of the new covenant is that he will remember our sins no more. That was not the promise of the old covenant. The promise of the old covenant was, I will remember your sins when you come into the land, and I will require recompense for them. The promise of the new covenant is that the suffering servant of the Lord has made recompense for our sins in his own blood. And thus they're remembered no more against us. But turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 1, because I just want to linger here over the freeness of this covenant. Because the covenant in and of itself that grants us this inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, it is unconditional in the sense that God does not require obedience from us in order to inherit what he promises. But there is a type of condition, one that God himself uh, supplies to us. Let's look at... Let's look at uh, Verses 4 and 5 again. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what's the only condition? What's the means by which we actually obtain this inheritance? It's faith. The, the charge, the gospel call, the free call, free invitation of the gospel is look to Jesus Christ in faith. It's saying, take hold of what belongs to Jesus Christ. It's saying, look at the righteousness and the obedience of Jesus Christ in your place. Look at his death on the cross for you. Look to his resurrection from the dead to conquer death for you. That's the call. That's the offer of this new and better covenant that gives us this inheritance. Do you want to be assured of the hope of heaven? My charge to you is... First and foremost, not to try to check off a list of things that you should be doing to ensure that I, I somehow persevere in doing good so that I might obtain the inheritance. My charge to you is look to Jesus Christ. My charge to you is to take hold of Jesus Christ every second of the day. And then good works will truly flow out of faith as their fruit. And then I can't help but, I wasn't even going to say this today, but I can't help but linger here for a second. Notice who this faith is applied by. Notice who is doing the action in verse 4. And that's why this is truly an unconditional covenant, because the only condition is turning away from ourselves and trusting in Jesus Christ. And even that condition is, has God wielding it and God enabling it in verse 4. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a faith that was sparked by God, that is sustained by God, and ultimately will be finished by God when we come into our inheritance and we see Jesus Christ face to face. This is a faith granted to us as we were 
caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we can be sure of the promises of God. And as we close here, look at the characteristics of this inheritance. I know we've kind of alluded to this already, but characteristics of this inheritance in verse 4 it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But l- notice just how much better this inheritance is. We've, we've seen that it was founded on a better covenant, with better promises, with a better mediator who obtains it for us. But also just look what it offers. It offers an inheritance which is imperishable, will never pass away, undefiled and unfading. So in other words... This inheritance is carnal, or is not carnal, not temporary. It is imperturbable and unforfeitable. It is an inheritance which is fashioned into the very same resurrection glory as Jesus Christ is. It's the new creation. It's the new creation that he is the head of. Romans chapter 8. All creation is groaning now. But what's going to happen one day? It's going to be fashioned into the image of Christ's glory as the, as the sons of God are revealed with him. We have an inheritance that is as imperishable as the risen Lord. It's as imperishable as Christ's resurrection glory is. <clears throat> but also, it's undefiled. And this This one, honestly, it brings massive amounts of gospel comfort for me. Because do you ever feel like on Sunday morning that you're coming into this place with the the muck and the grime of the world all over you? Do you ever feel like coming into worship on Sunday morning that I've sinned a thousand times this week? How am I supposed to go and celebrate what I have in Christ today? I still feel all of my sins. I still feel the dirtiness of the world all over me. But I'm supposed to go celebrate an inheritance that is overflowing with the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. How am I supposed to do that? And the answer is found in the fact that this is an inheritance that is undefiled by our sins. Even when we stumble, even when we fall, your inheritance remains the same. That wasn't true of the Old Covenant. They could absolutely defile their inheritance by their disobedience. When we come in faith to Jesus Christ, when we come before the throne of God in worship, we come and approach an inheritance that is coming to us one day that is undefilable even by all of our sins because our sins are not stronger than the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that this inheritance is indestructibly built upon. And then lastly, uh, this inheritance is unfading. In Jesus, we have an inheritance that will never lose its luster. Why, did the, why do you think the children of Israel would fall back into idolatry over and over and over again? It, it, at least part of the reason is because the world and all of its idolatry 
was offering something that they thought in the moment carried more luster and more glory than the living God dwelling in their presence. But notice that this, this, is, this inheritance is an unfading inheritance. This is an inheritance that will never lose its luster because ultimately the center of this inheritance is the fact that one day I will see the triune God face to face in Christ. That's the sum and center of this inheritance. It's not even just resurrection glory, even though that's included with it. It's the fact that I will see the triune God face to face in Jesus Christ. And that truly is an unfading inheritance because we will worship forever the God who does not change, who is infinite in glory and incomprehensible to us. Day after day, we will just plunge deeper into the depths of joy at the throne of God as we delight in our Savior together. So all things considered, Peter is writing to give us perseverance-inspiring assurance that is founded on the security of what we've been promised in Christ. Do you want the, t- the kind of faith that when it is tested, it proves genuine? Is that the kind of faith you desire to have? Do you long for your faith to be proven true? The answer this morning is keep looking to Jesus Christ. Keep taking hold of Jesus Christ by faith, day after day, and you will persevere in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that what we have in Christ is so far beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. We just we rest in Jesus this morning. We rest in the fact that his blood and righteousness has secured for us a new and better covenant and has granted us this inheritance freely and that it is more than anything we could ever ask or think. Thank you for this time together. Apply your word to our hearts by your spirit. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll uh, stand with me for our closing hymn. Turn with me in your Trinity hymnal, the Trinity number 609. Trinity number 609, a few more years shall roll. Wow.